A brand new sound for your Sunday morning. The only one who could ever teach me. Introducing the Reverend A.R. Bernard of the Christian Cultural Center. Was the son of a preacher man. And Rabbi Joseph Fantasnik of Religion on the Line. The only one who could ever teach me. Now on 77 WABC. The Rev and the Rabbi. Where faith matters. Good morning, I'm Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. Reverend, happy Father's Day first, but I want you to know I was in the car, and there was a car in the next lane with the music blaring. You've heard that loud music, that, you know, the vibrations on both cars. So what did I do? I turned up WABC. There's John Casamitidis, as loud. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, you know, we can do the same thing here. Uh, but I, I just want to say on this Father's Day, one of the things I, I reflected on is someone said to me years ago, always keep in mind, Rabbi, when the significant becomes insignificant, the insignificant becomes significant. And maybe today's a day to reflect on what is really significant, what really should matter in our lives. We spend a lot of time uh, dealing with insignificant things I find in our daily lives. You know, frankly, I don't care. You know, who A-Rod and J-Lo date. I don't care about the internal problems at the royal family. I care about my own family. I care about problems of other families where I can make a difference. But let's look at the significant, not the insignificant. And I think that's one of the messages of Father's Day. Rabbi, I will tell you, there's a song, and you, you probably know it, and it's called The Cats in the Cradle. Yeah. The first time I heard that song, all right, I had two sons. And that song convicted me so deeply because it made me think of the one opportunity when my children were small and growing up to make sure that if any gift I could give them, it would be the gift of my presence, being there for them. And it paid off. And now when I hear that song, I don't feel as guilty. (laughs) I still, because, you know, we say, okay, did I do enough? Yeah, sure, sure. But, you know, the song is about not being there, being too busy, and then the son becomes exactly what the father was, and the father realizes what he created. Yeah, no, I, uh, you know, we're, we are supposed to be role models, and I think we have to recognize that what we do, more than what we say, uh, we've spoken many times of, you know, what we say inside the sanctuary, we should see outside the street. So the best way that young people can learn about love and honesty and all of the right values is if they see a loving parent, if they see yeah. an honest parent. We have to model what we say. Uh, and I, I hope on Father's Day there's, you know, obviously every day should be Father's Day and Mother's Day, uh, but... It's, it's nice to be able to say that uh, what they do is somehow emblematic of what they learned when they were growing up with us. You know, you recommended a book called Morality by mm-hmm. Jonathan Sachs. Right. And I have to tell you, that book continues to play a very important role in causing me to reflect on certain things. And I have to bring up something that stood out to me deeply. And that is when he spoke about the we and the I. Mm -hmm. 
And he talked about in all English and American books year by year from, from the year 1900 to 2008 that we heard less and less of we and more and more yeah. of I. And that is so real because in a, in, in, a, in a society where it's radical individualism that influences and shapes so much of who we are and what we do, what Sachs communicated was that there can be no I or me without the us or the we. That it's the us and the we who actualize the I and the me. I will tell you, boy, do we need that sermon preached today. Let me also echo that by saying, you know, prayers very often, for the most part, are written in the plural. They're not written in the singular. It's about we as a community. How many times do we speak about the invaluable importance of being part of a community. We have the concept of the minion, being part of a, a prayer quorum. And the reason being is because when you come together with others, you recognize your dependency and your responsibility. You see people are hurting that you have to help. You see people that you need who can help you. Uh, so we more than I uh, is, is very, very important uh, Anyway, this is also, I think, a time to urge people, we talk about we, to vote. I think it's a religious uh-huh. responsibility. I think if we value community, if we value one another, then we have uh, an obligation to cast our vote so that we make a difference. You can't look back and complain about results if you didn't participate. Right, right. I, look, you know, I, 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 I was doing an a interview with M, uh, NBC television down in Knoxville, Tennessee this past week. Dr. Martin Luther King's Jr.'s daughter, Bernice, Dr. Bernice King, and I will be holding on June 29th a town hall meeting because there's been violence. Uh, several young people in the same high school have, have died from gun violence, tension between the police, and this is down in Tennessee. So we're, we're, we, we've been invited in to have a town hall meeting to start to talk about building bridges and having conversations. And you and I know every significant, you talk about voting, this is why this came up to me now, every significant social problem can be traced to the fault lines in human institutions. And only by by working within those institutions can those fault lines be identified, mm-hmm. number one, and repaired. Yeah. And only by our participation can we influence change in, in relationships, systems, and structures towards towards justice and, 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 and concord. And that, it's about the we, surrendering the I, so that we can come together. Look, I don't tell people who to vote for. I only say this, vote for people who are going to be supportive of your values, of your families, of your community, of your people. Vote against those who seek to hurt you. Uh, and but uh, above all, cast your ballot so you can say, I did everything I could to make a difference. And we have a guest today that uh, you have spoken of so highly to me, uh, who certainly is trying to make a difference in the community. We sure do. And her name is Joyce A. Smith, longtime member of Christian Cultural, Cultural Center. She's one of mine, Rabbi, by the way. And uh, we're looking forward. She is now the acting district attorney for Nassau County, first person of color to occupy that office. And we're going to hear about her journey and get to know the person. Look forward to it. We'll be back.
with the Rev and the Rabbi. And the Rabbi. <laughs> W-A-B-C. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. Reverend, the guest we have today is, I know, very close to you, highly respected by you, so I look forward to the introduction. Well, we're pleased to be joined today, Rabbi, by the newly appointed acting district attorney of Nassau County, Joyce A. Smith. And Ms. Smith was sworn in earlier this month uh, following the departure of her predecessor, who left to take a position on the New York State Court of Appeals. And uh, I was uh, proud to be there as a proud spiritual father, and her family have been members of our church for quite some time. And uh, it was just a very, very special moment. She is the first person of color, Rabbi, to occupy that seat. And before becoming acting Nassau County District Attorney, uh, she was the Assistant District Attorney for Community Relations, and she oversaw recruitment, immigrant, and community affairs and victim services. And she also, by the way, Rabbi, headed up several councils in Nassau County with Mm -hmm. the goal of improving relations between the police, prosecutors, and the general public. And we welcome you, District Attorney Joyce Smith, to the Rev and the Rabbi. Well, thank you, Pastor Bernard, and and thank you, Rabbi Potasnik. Thank you both so much for inviting me to join you today. Thank you. So since you're my guest first, and Rabbi is along for the ride, I'm going to give him <laughs> the opportunity and respect to throw the first question at you. So, D.A. Smith, I said to the Reverend the other day, it will be a great moment in our country when we no longer have to introduce somebody by saying, this is the first person of color to hold that office. When it becomes something that, you know, is expected, that anyone of any background uh, is eligible and can get elected uh, to office. So I I think of this historic moment, but I also think ahead uh, to when it won't be so historic. And I think you'll welcome that day as well. Absolutely. I I think it's important for those who are the first in any seat to train someone to be the next and the next and the next. We have to um, not be the first and the only in these roles. Uh, So I agree. It's absolutely important that we um, open a door and leave it open for those who would follow our lead. So why this so, position? So, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Rabbi. No, go I'm, ahead. I'm thinking here you have a you know distinguished legal background. You could have gone into private practice uh, with much greater remuneration, fiscal remuneration, <laughs> and yet you chose public service. Can you tell me why? Sure. Uh, so I went to Howard Law School where we were trained that attorneys are either social engineers or their parasites on society. And Mm -hmm. that is something that was ingrained in us from the moment that we walked through the doors. I knew from uh, all of my professors who had some public service role and some uh, responsibility for giving back to their communities, that it was important for me to not just become an attorney, but but to become an attorney who cares. And so um, I learned then from one of my professors who sat me down just before graduation uh, that becoming a prosecutor would enable me to give back to my community in a meaningful way in that each person who had been victimized or who experienced some wrongdoing needed an attorney who cares. And and so representing the people generally would enable me to do that in, in a broad sense. 
So, so let's talk a little bit about that journey because you also worked as a, a executive director for the Bronx Family Justice Center. Uh, what was that like? That was an incredible opportunity that um, I did not fully anticipate uh, the, the magnitude of the work that we would do in the Bronx FJC. Uh, we operated as part of the mayor's office to combat domestic violence. And there are five family justice centers around the city at the time, one in every borough. And our responsibility collectively was to make sure that we helped families in crisis. Uh, the vast majority of people that we assisted would come in on a walk-in basis or refer to us by some city agency, law enforcement, et cetera. And we would help them through their crisis, whether it meant providing uh, services on site, such as counseling and therapeutic services. We had art therapy. Uh, we had uh, yoga classes. And we had different uh, means of supporting them on site. But we also provided them uh, referrals to outside agencies that would help them through their journey of healing and one thing that's important uh, in a family justice center model is that we recognize, though it's housed within most district attorney offices around uh, the city and around the, the state, that partnership between law enforcement and the social service or the social work world uh, creates a harmony and a balance that for many, many years have been missing in the world of domestic violence uh, or intimate partner violence. Um, we needed to have a recognition and an awareness that once the criminal case concluded, the person's crisis didn't necessarily conclude. So it was necessary to reach out past our comfort zones into uh, the world of therapeutic services and other support that victims needed. So, so this was under Commissioner Jimenez, correct? Um, Absolutely. Under the Bloomberg administration, I worked with her, an incredible uh, uh, individual and had the opportunity to give the invocation of the establishment of uh, one of these centers in in in, in Brooklyn. Uh, was it uh, Commissioner Jimenez that you were working with? Yes, sir. I was there and and joined her staff um, early on. Uh, she made it clear to me that she was committed to. Um, servicing our community in an excellent way that she demanded the most of herself and she demanded that of her staff and colleagues. And I truly consider her one of my role models to this day. She mentored me in my leadership and mentored me in the administration of a center that had 30 uh, agency partners on site. And you can imagine there are competing values and mission statements and interests, but she showed me how to do that with grace and dignity and I'm, you know, really credit her with starting my career in that in that way. Yeah, she was an amazing woman. I, you know, she, we worked together uh, not only with the um, domestic violence issues, but also because she did a presentation at our church, and we had uh, close to a thousand women who attended that uh, presentation. Uh, but she also set up a a system where we had. Uh, police gather together, especially police brass, to talk about the relationship between the community and and police officers and policing. This is where, under Commissioner Schaefer, it was introduced uh, CPR, courtes- courtesy, professionalism, and respect. And uh, it's just amazing individual for you to work with. And 
we get to understand the influences on, on you that shaped you into who you are today. Rabbi? Thank you. Uh, I just want to say that the family justice system is one of the, I think, most important resources in New York, around the country as well. Uh, we as a board of rabbis, we were one of the original sponsors of the Family Justice Center in Brooklyn. And I think people need to understand the strength and support that must be given to victims of abuse. Very often they're women. Uh, it's not easy to come forward. The fear factor, uh, the support factor, how are you going to support yourself? Because very often the victim has to leave the house uh, to survive. Uh, talk about that because I think there really could be a, a stronger partnership between the faith community and family justice system in terms of helping those who find themselves in this horrible position, you know, confronting this plague of violence. Absolutely. We need our clergy to be oftentimes, especially in families that are experiencing violence or some other crisis, they are the first responders. They are the first place of um, of counsel, of support, of advice that we rely very heavily on in the other settings, such as government agencies and law enforcement. So in, uh, in a sense, especially within the Family Justice Center model, we incorporated the clergy into our day-to-day operations so that we had a network uh, in the Bronx Family Justice Center um, during the time that I was the director. We had a, a strong network of faith leaders who partnered with us, who we also trained in the aspects of power and control dynamics and intimate partner violence uh, in various uh, families. We wanted our clergy in the Bronx to understand that they were one of our most important partners on-site and off-site. So uh, knowing that a rabbi, a pastor, a priest, uh, um, an imam, that those were the individuals that many people would go to because they trust them, because they understand their their history and their heritage and their background and their faith, those are the individuals that could be most helpful and most impactful in deterring uh, a, a pattern of violence yeah. or deterring a person from experiencing violence. You know, Reverend, I remember in many houses of worship, there were notices put up in the restrooms because you had to be very careful if you were a victim how you were going to communicate your pain you couldn't do it publicly because you fear, but so you had wanted to do it privately. Who would you call? Where would you go? And I remember seeing in various restrooms, you have these notices with phone number. Uh, this is where you call, and everything is is held confidentially. But the, the house of worship was critical. Uh, and clergy, we still continue the training to recognize indicia of violence. You see someone, you know, at, have, at the collation and you see scratches on the hand or whatever the marks are, you need to be able to have that painful conversation with a person who's so fearful of reaching out. Uh, so it, it really, uh, you ought to be commended for the great work you've done and continue to do. Absolutely. You know, Rabbi, when you, when you say that, not only is it critical in houses of worship, but also challenging because in our context, uh, as a multicultural church of color, we have people from the Caribbean, we have people from Africa, we have people from Asia in our congregation, and some of them bring certain customs and traditions that were accepted in the context that they come from, but unacceptable here 
in America. And some of that had to do with domestic abuse, domestic violence. Did you encounter that, uh, DA? And how did you respond? Yeah, absolutely. Cultural norms are often one of the most uh, difficult areas to to change uh, minds or to change attitudes towards intimate partner violence and um, helping the traditional notions of what a person might expect as a wife, what a person might expect as a husband, um, helping a person understand that there should never be an element of violence or, you know, control or uh, abuse of power that takes place in that intimate relationship is, is difficult, but having the help of a so-called credible messenger or someone that, you know, an individual who is a member of the house of worship will trust and lean on the leadership of their faith leader before they will trust and lean on the leadership and guidance of a police officer or of a service provider or a social worker or a hospital attendant. That's why helping shape and, and, and form conversations in which these, um, we can dispel myths, but also challenge notions of what is acceptable uh, certainly no one should ever suffer violence or harm in the context of a marriage or in the context of a, a relationship. Um, but it's necessary for everyone to say that same message in every corner of our society. Mm. Were you ever uh, involved in trying to protect, for example, young people with possible online abuse? Uh, you know, they spend a lot of time on the computer, even during COVID, more time, you know, with online learning, but they're on that computer and are vulnerable uh, to abuse uh, on the Internet. Is that something that you also were involved in? Yeah, what we've started doing now here in the Nassau DA's office is uh, spreading the message of Stop Then Send, which is one of the school-based programs that help us to educate young people about the dangers that exist on the Internet. So the person they're chatting with or the person they're interacting with on Instagram may not actually be uh, an individual that matches the identity in their, their profile picture. So helping young people to understand that they need to exercise Internet safety, but also uh, safety with regard to any aspect of social media and communication in the digital age is, is incredibly important. Um, we're not seeing uh, the rate of response or, or uh, reporting for these incidents that we might hope. So we want more young people to be educated and to speak up and to speak out. Uh, Cyberbullying is a real threat for young people. Uh, it's now more than ever because we didn't grow up with cell phones when I was uh, in high school and middle school. So we have to change the messaging to meet the times. Mm. You know, I, I, I'm just curious because, you know, we're still in uh, somewhat divisive times in, in our nation. Uh, you know, we're, we're trying to heal and recover. We're doing some things uh, between Rabbi and I to speak into that and build bridges. But, you know, there's been a lot of tension between police and, and the public. You headed up a, a council in Nassau County. Uh, whose job it was to create more collaboration between police, prosecutors, and the community. How successful were you in, in improving those relations, and what was the metric? How did you measure that success? Well, we're still working on it, and I believe the metric and, and the measurement is based on the feedback that we're getting from community groups and the individuals who are directly affected by policing and the gap in communication that exists in some of these 
corners around the county. Um, we modeled the uh, expansion of our advisory councils really around the sense of, um, you know, building out of our internal meetings here in the district attorney's office and going to where our communities live, going to where our residents and the people we serve, going to the places where they live and creating an opportunity for them to have a, a consistent forum with their uh, law enforcement agencies in those hmm. uh, towns and villages so that they could feel comfortable speaking with their law enforcers and with their police departments. The gap in communication, I believe, is the reason why we have the extensive uh, misunderstandings, distrust, and the division that exists between our communities and our police officers. It's first born out of misunderstanding what each uh, per- person's role is in these different um, in-, in these different corners of the community. But then it's also understanding that our police officers are public servants. Our police officers and our district attorneys are public servants first. And so in order to serve, you have to understand. In order to serve, you have to speak with and communicate with the people that you're serving. And we cannot simply be an occupying outside force in these uh, villages and towns. We have to be a member of these communities and show that we care by being present. Renee Bernard, Rabbi Joseph Potasnik, The Rev and the Rabbi, where faith matters. 77 WABC and WABCRadio.com. We're speaking with uh, Joyce A. Smith, who's the acting district attorney in Nassau County. Uh, D.A. Smith, you know, this issue of policing has become somewhat contentious in some quarters. From what I understand, talking to people who live in some of the higher crime areas, they want to see the presence of police. Uh, they are very upset when they hear cries of defund the police. Uh, you know, good policing, I, I think most people, you know, or all people should be in favor of good policing, but they want to see police in the community. They feel safer when there are police there. They want to know that there's someone who's going to protect them. I mean, is that your read as well? Well, my read is that we all want to be safe and that no matter what community you live in, you should expect a degree of safety and comfort walking down your block, pulling into your driveway, getting off the bus, going to the train station. We should all be able to enjoy a degree of safety when we live in a society that is civilized and orderly. And that is an expectation that we place not only on our elected officials and our police officers, but also on each other also on our neighbors and, and the young people who might decide that they don't have any choice but uh, to engage in, in some destructive behavior. It is an expectation that uh, we demand of our family members and of our friends and those closest to us. So living in a safe, orderly community is something that we all want. And I believe because that's a goal that we share, we should keep that as a central theme in our patterns, practices, and policies. Where we tend to differ is the method by which we get to mm-hmm. that level of safety. And that shared um, right. sense of accountability and transparency is something that is it can be achieved, but it requires a dialogue and it requires trust. You're listening to The Rev and the Rabbi. Our guest today is the acting district attorney for Nassau County here in New York, Joyce A. Smith. The intersection of faith and culture can be difficult to navigate. 
And often individuals feel that they have to abandon their faith identity in order to navigate that. But you've done well. I mean, faith plays an important role in your personal journey, but also the journey of, of, of your vocation, your, your, your calling. Uh, tell us about that, Joyce. In my faith, um, my belief as a Christian, my faith tradition, and my training uh, at Christian Cultural Center informs everything that I do. My, my faith practice is the foundation of every day. My prayer, my um, dedication, and my, my regular reminder of who I am and my identity um, as a believer is what has shaped my entire professional path, but also my, my personal development. Um, I was raised in a Christian home where my parents taught my brother and sister and I to first trust God above everything else and everyone else, uh, no matter what we saw or thought we understood about the world around us, it had to be informed um, by our understanding of who God is and who he is to us on a personal level. So that relationship is what has made me who I am today. I could not dedicate myself to a life of service without following the the pattern and practice that uh, Jesus established for me. And that in my faith tradition and in my personal relationship with the Lord has, I hope, made me a better servant uh, because it, it always grounds me and it always helps me to remember, um, you know, you haven't arrived yet and, um, you, you know, you cannot expect to rest on your laurels or to be happy with your achievements. You have to continue trying to do better and aiming to aiming higher. It's interesting. Rabbi, did you, did you, you hear all that, Rabbi? She, she goes to my church, Rabbi. I want you to make <laughs> And from what I hear, one. none of this she did goes, she, she goes regularly. Good attendance record. <laughs> yes, I do. Yes, we do. We yeah. do. Every Sunday. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. When you walk into a, a synagogue, uh, you very often will see a phrase in Hebrew which says, translated, know before whom you stand. And the message is that no matter what you do in your lives, you're accountable there is a day of judgment. There is a responsibility you have to account uh, for what you do. We often say, when you're there, you can't write checks to charity. You have to show receipts. Um, and, and I think from listening to you and hearing from others, I have a friend who's involved in civil rights. And I said, what inspired you? He said, well, I remember hearing the rabbi say, that famous passage, Justice, Justice, Pursue, the emphasis on justice. I read books of the prophets. Uh, I remember meeting someone who was doctors without borders, going to all of these uh, remote places, helping people. He said, I said, why'd you do it? He said, because my rabbi taught me, you have to make a difference. You have not completed the journey unless you've helped others complete theirs. Uh, and I'm always taken, I'm, I'm very impressed with your response, but people who... You, the faith is the cornerstone uh, of who they are, what they believe, and what they do. That belief translates into behavior. So I'm very happy. I just want to mention one other thing. I read this past week the passing of a great federal judge, Jack Weinstein. Uh, yeah. And I don't know if you had the opportunity of ever meeting him, but he, there was something in the obituary that touched me. That very often when there was a defendant before him, he would want to see where the defendant grew up. And he spoke about going to projects uh, on, on occasion, going to different housing areas, uh, some of them from 
poorer areas. She says, because if I'm going to send in someone, I want to know as much as I can about that person, about that growing up. And I said, wow, that's that's a dimension I never, ever thought about. And uh, I just wonder what your take is on that. Every person that we represent, whether they are a, a victim of a crime or a defendant who's been accused of a crime, deserves personalized attention to their backgrounds to their and to their future. Uh, without understanding the person behind the docket number, without understanding the person behind the NICID number or the New York State identification uh, number, we cannot understand how best to serve their needs and to affect justice. We will simply look at that individual as a piece of paper or as a file. We will dismiss ourselves from their needs and from their expectations of the justice system. And we will become not just robotic, but also apathetic in the work that we're doing. We can't submit ourselves to that. That is um, an attitude that I think will lead to the demise of, of the modern criminal justice system. But it's also what's led to a lot of division in our government systems. Largely, we, we have to consider each person as an individual and as a human being that is deserving of our attention and the commitment of our time. Joyce, I cannot tell you how proud you make me to be your pastor. Uh, Just listening to you uh, articulate uh, your faith and how it has informed your actions. Uh, I'm so blessed because it's, it's, it's out of our faith that we have, and Rabbi and I talk about this often, we have in our society a, a, a moral value consensus. It teaches us about the dignity, uh, and life of the human person and how we should respect that and how we should work towards the common good. We may debate about what that common good may be, uh, and how to implement it, but at least it comes from that place of understanding that human life is to be uh, respected, it has value, it has worth, and we do everything that we can. Uh, I cannot tell you uh, how proud I am uh, of you and to hear you articulate it in such a clear and concise way. Rabbi, I'm I'm boasting here, Rabbi, you know. Uh, and you have every right to, because obviously you've been a great inspiration to Joyce. And uh, I just want to say this, Joyce, I went to Brooklyn Law School, and... Yeah. When I graduated, I remember one of the professors, Professor Jerome Leitner, who taught torts. And he came over to a number of us and he said, you know, congratulations, you're graduating. You're going to now, you know, go out there and select a particular field of specialization. I I did. I never practiced. But he said, I want you to go back and look at your applications. Look at the words you wrote as to why you applied to law school. Look at some of the ideals you expressed. Uh in making a commitment to become a student of the law. And I can just, listening to you, see that what you originally wanted to do and what you're doing resemble one another. Uh, there isn't a gap. Uh, uh, they reflect uh, a great teachings of your tradition, great teachings of your parents, uh, and you have that real moral core which makes you an inspiration to so many others. So I, I'm very happy that you were with us today. Absolutely. Joyce, thank you for being on the program. Rabbi, I said something. I had the opportunity to give the invocation at her swearing in. And I made a comment that, you know, she represents the best of us. Mm -hmm. And I meant it in two ways. Number one, the best of us as a community of color, but also the best of us as humanity. 
And I think those two things go together yeah. every time. Yeah. And Joyce, should either one of us, God forbid, become a defendant? All we ask was a little bit of compassion. More <laughs> compassion for me, but compassion. Absolutely. Compassion and mercy. I promise you that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being on the program. And we'll be back with more right here on 77 WABC, The Rev and the Rabbi. Reverend A.R. Bernard, Rabbi Joseph Potasnik, where faith matters. The Rev and the Rabbi, 77 WABC. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. So was I too boastful? I mean, was I my, my chest stuck out too far, <laughs> Rabbi? No, no. You were rightfully proud. Uh, look, you know, I think all of us in our respective work ask ourselves, did we make a difference? Uh, and it is so reassuring when we meet someone and say, you know, you said something, you taught me something, you inspired me to do something, and that's why I'm on this path. And we feel that self-validation, we did something right. Um, yeah. and, I th- and I think when you have a, a Joyce Smith, when you have other people who are people with these heralded accomplishments, and they trace it back to their faith and all of those who instill that love of faith, you have every right to be proud. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Rabbi. I am. I really, really am. And look, I'm proud when any human being spends their life bringing out the best in themselves mm-hmm. in order to bring out the best in others. Uh, I think that's, that's that's what makes humanity special, I think, and believe deeply that that's what God intended. You know, we say that if you pray for peace only for yourself, only for those close to you, your prayer is incomplete because you have not helped bring peace to others. And we believe, of course, if there's only peace in one area of the world and there's no peace in the other area, we still have an, uh, an unfulfilled uh, accomplishment that we have more to do. So uh, I, I'm very, very happy to hear uh, when the book and the movie uh, so to speak, resemble each other. There's a story. Someone who was on a flight, and they were showing the Ten Commandments uh, as the movie. And then the pilot asked, look, we're coming. We're going to make the landing soon with our descent. We have to turn off the movie. And one of the passengers complained to the flight steward and said, that's not right. I want to see the ending. And the flight steward says, I am sure you've read the book. You know the ending of this. He says, yeah, but the, but the movie and the book are never the same. <laughs> and I and I just think that, you know, we have a book, we have our, you know, Hebrew Testament, New Testament, all the different Bibles we have, and how refreshing it is when someone has emerged in the movie of life and can look back and say, I very much am connected to the book of life, and we resemble one another. Yeah, I, it, it's, and you, you, it's just a great feeling. There's a movie... Uh, Mr. Holland's opus. Do you remember that? Yeah. Where the the value was what he poured into those students in the short period of time that he had them, that stayed with them for the rest of their lives. And sometimes we, we, we can miss that. Even you and I. So many people pass by us, through us. You know what I mean? We get to speak into so many lives from when they're children into adulthood, into seniors. And you and I can often wonder if we made a difference. Well, you know, when I think of what you're saying, and today is Father's Day, 
And I know that there are times we look at our own lives as faith leaders, and we have families. And I think of my own son, and, you know, there are times you, you're going to miss that moment in his life. You're not going to be at that little league game or whatever, because you're, you're called away, you're at a funeral, you can't break away, and you're racked with guilt. Uh, and you want to look back and, and, and hope that you did make a difference. I remember saying to my son one day, Harrison, what were the best times we spent going to the, we went to a lot of ball games. He said, no, no, wasn't the ball games, wasn't all the plays. The best times we spent were when I was in the car with you and we spoke to one another. And we, we listened to one another, learned from one another. And I think that's, that's what matters. And as fathers, you know, and, and mothers can say the same thing. Uh, we hope that uh, they don't have to follow in our footsteps, but at least walk on a path uh, that will make us proud of one another. What you just said is so important. You know, I have seven sons, mm-hmm. and my wife did a good job raising the eight of us. <laughs> and I will tell you, when we have holidays, and you know, I've got twenty-four grandchildren. I got one more on a new one on the way, which will make twenty-five. So you you can understand what Christmas is like in, mm-hmm. in our household. Thanksgiving is like in our household. But after dinner. When we're having dessert and we're talking, they're talking about stories of experiences when they were children in the car, on the picnic, in the house. And, you know, I, I sometimes just step, stand back and listen. And I look at that and I say, this is what we do. It's not all the things that we give, mm-hmm. but the memories that we create along the way. That becomes the conversations that stay with them for the rest of their lives. Well, your wife told me that you were the most difficult child of all. Uh, I, she you, <laughs> you presented the most problems to her. Uh, no, but, you know, I mean, Father's Day is nice. We get the card, the greeting, the gift. But, you know, it's the words that matter. It's the feelings that are critical. We want to know that we instilled those values that enable our kids to go forward, you know, in a, in a way of dignity and decency. Uh, but we have a profession, as many others do, that is so demanding, it robs us of that time we want to spend with family. And I, you know, I remember the, I'm sure you've had the guilt feelings, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're, you're, you're hitting on a very important subject that I have to share with leaders when I talk to other ministers and talk to them about making sure that they prioritize their lives carefully, that they keep life in balance, because it's so easy to get caught up in the work of ministry, helping others, and you fail to be there for your own family. And I will tell you, Rabbi, that is a, it's a balancing act, because there's always going to be a demand. Someone's always going to need our help in some way, and we have to learn to detach ourselves uh, from that so that we could attach ourselves to our family. Because I, I said to myself, I said, I never want my children to grow up resenting what I do, yeah. resenting the call upon my life. And I will tell you, we work hard to make things as normal as possible. And to this day, they love and respect what I do and and, and the person that I've modeled 
to them the best that I could. We're, we all have flaws. And, and Rabbi, you, as you know, we've had you know very transparent conversations. I grew up without a father. Yeah. My yeah. father abandoned me. And, and that became a motivation for me to make sure that no matter what, I was going to be there for my children and not become or have them become a statistic of fatherlessness that we experience in, in our nation. That's why you and I know, and others as well, they're not going to remember us for that extraordinary sermon we delivered on the Sabbath or during a holiday. They're going to remember us because we found time to be with them. Uh, I remember someone saying, my father gave me the best gift of all. He believed in me. And I think all of us, you know, that's what we strive to do. And uh, hopefully... Uh, we're successful, but it comes with failings. There's yeah. no record of perfection, but at least we can say we tried and we uh, we did as much as we could. Could have done better, but we did okay, and it, it's reflected in, in in our families. Thank right. you. This is a great Father's Day sermon here that we're giving, uh, Rabbi. And to all the fathers out there, you know, we do the best that we can. Don't give up. Model it the best that you can, and if you haven't done a great job, look, stop, repent, ask forgiveness, and rebuild. Yeah. It's never too late Try again to, to make a change and make a difference. Yeah, that's why I told you the Talmud begins on page two. Uh, sometimes you have to learn how to live on page two. Page one didn't work out. Maybe page two will. Have a great Father's Excellent. Day. Excellent. Yeah, God bless you all. Until next time. The Rev. And the Rabbi. God bless.